I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the strong town conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I'm joined once again by Chuck Marone, CEO and founder of the Strong Towns organization. Glad to have you back, Chuck. Hey Abby, thanks for having me. It's it's great to be here. Absolutely. The article that we'll be covering today was published in the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times by Matthew Fleischer and is entitled, Want to Tear Down Insidious Monuments to Racism and Segregation, Bulldoze LA Freeways. As the title suggests, the article makes the case that freeways of Los Angeles are inherently racist monuments that were tools for speeding up the intentional segregation of people in the city. Following the 1944 Federal Aid Highway Act, the allocated funds for nearly 2,000 miles of freeway in California enabled the federal government to Um, fund local officials, engineers, and planners to implement the clearance of what at the time they called slums or otherwise known as racially diverse and black middle-class neighborhoods for the purpose of building freeways. Meanwhile, communities in Los Angeles like Beverly Hills and South Pasadena were able to fight off planned freeway expansions at the time. The combination of transportation and housing policy by the state, federal, and local governments at the time has created segregation not just in Los Angeles, but in cities across the country that persist to this day. I think anyone listening to this who lives in a midsize or larger city can point to similar sequences of local events. And that's really not a coincidence. It is our recent American history. So echoing calls for the teardown of monuments that are deemed racist, the article calls for the demolition of freeways. So Chuck, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this article and if you see freeways as being inherently racist and needing to be torn down. It's an interesting way to take the current conversation and apply it to, you know, this this broader issue that people have been debating for a long long time. To make it very personal, like I can go to my city here, and my city here, which is predominantly white, almost exclusively white, and we can go to the poor, disenfranchised neighborhoods of this community, and what you will see are wide streets, uh, devoid of trees, no sidewalks, basically like the lower level tier of neighborhood care. And if you go to the wealthier neighborhoods, you will see what tends to be narrower streets, better design, nice sidewalks, street trees. A lot of this is a function of, and from my city, where race is not like the driving thing, a lot of this is a function of just the fact that the engineer wants to do the wide street. The default is to the obnoxious, like neighborhood destroying, uh, very insensitive design. The people in the wealthy neighborhoods don't stand for it. And the processes that we have to, in a sense, push back and not accept that, they have access to. 
So they can show up at meetings. They know where to go. They know who to talk to. They're friends with the mayor or the council member. They can, you know, bring pressure through the local Rotary Club. And so what you see at the end of the day is that their neighborhoods are nice. The infrastructure they get is is nice. Actually, the, the crazy thing is it actually costs less to build than the stuff when you go on the south side of town, which here is the the poorer side, you have some of the collection of the widest, most obnoxious, horrible streets uh, to go along with properties that are in decline. Take that sense, so that instance, and instead of having it be, you know, 100,000, 200,000, you know, half million dollar local street projects, have it be multi-billion dollar highway construction. I'm talking about in today's dollars, in the early days of highway building. And, you know, what happened is the highway builders went and they said, as a policy, we are going to run highways through the middle of cities. We should talk about this as a policy at some point here. And where are we going to go? We're going to go to the neighborhoods that, in a sense, can't fight back. Poor places, places full of, you know, segregated uh, minorities, places where banks did not have an interest. You know, you, you have the whole redlining conversation and access to loans and capital that were often, you know, denied people in these neighborhoods. And so, you know, bankers and, and people who are important in, in business realm are not going to oppose you. And so in a sense, we gave engineers and designers and planners a blank check to go in and build these things. And they went in the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance were neighborhoods that did not have access to power to be able to resist them. And so the legacy of that is you can go to almost any major city in North America today, and you will see the traditionally African-American neighborhoods. You will see the traditional minority neighborhoods. Traditionally poor neighborhoods are the ones who have had to accept, in a sense, accept the worst infrastructure. It would it would be as if, and we have actually done this too, but to a lesser extent, it would be as if we went to every disenfranchised neighborhood and say, you are going to take the sewer and the garbage dump and the incinerator and everything that we don't want, that is going to go in your neighborhood. And in the nice neighborhood, we'll go, you know, all the things we care about and, and want to make nice and beautiful and, and are enjoyable. And that legacy to the extent that it's always a multi-factor causation, but to the extent that that correlates with a, a very racist set of policies, uh, those outcomes obviously are still with us very deeply today. Well, you bring up a good question about the policy of building freeways through our cities in the first place. I think it's important to remember that Americans did not invent the concept of freeways, and we kind of just designed and implemented them differently than in other countries. If you look at an aerial of nearly any mid-sized to large city in Europe, you will find that their freeways actually don't enter the core of the city, and instead the freeway network is designed as a large ring around the outskirts of the metro with connections to boulevards and parkways that facilitate movement towards the center. In the U.S., we often have that periphery ring around our cities, yet we've substituted a consistent urban parkway and boulevard system for additional freeways that cut through neighborhoods and business districts in order to facilitate ease of travel. By designing our freeways in this way, 
we've not only used them as a tool for deconstructing existing neighborhoods, but they are also large infrastructure investments that completely disregard the need for productive land use and development to support the long-term financial obligations of maintaining the system. The benefits of instead having a parkway and boulevard system within a large city is that you can actually utilize the land that's adjacent to the network and you don't have major physical barriers that separate neighborhoods from, from each other. I'm actually wondering if you have any insight in, around the history of freeway systems in other countries and why the United States missed what I see as a critical design feature. If you go to Europe, you will find uh, neighborhoods that are deeply segregated and you will find you know, that they struggle not to, in the way that we do in different ways with issues of race and class. But geographically on the ground is a very, is very, very different. Is very different. We decided here at the end of World War II, and understand that this was a political consensus. So the consensus was, from a progressive or a liberal point of view, uh, we could create a more equitable country. We could create a broader middle class and have more people have access to good jobs and and good pay. From a business standpoint, from a, a more right-centered, uh, in our in our context, country, a more right-centered approach. From a, a business banking industry standpoint, uh, we could open up way more land for development. We could have you know a building of homes and strip malls and everything we've come to associate with this suburban experiment. We could create this broad middle class, this group of you know consumers, uh, Americans, and ownership society. And we could do that in the resource that we had in abundance, which was raw land. And so you have a country that embarks on, after a decade of depression, half a decade of war, inflation, political turmoil, uh, all this stuff, we embark on this, this approach to create this new version of America. The only thing, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes around that, you know, the only thing we had to sacrifice was... Uh, our cities and you know the 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 core of our cities, which were nasty and and blighted, and you know we came up with all kinds of ways to describe them, and and there were problems with our cities. I mean, let's not let's not you know pretend that there there weren't, but the efforts to fix them, the efforts to alleviate them, things out of the city beautiful movement, like you know simply running good sanitation, you know, and, and good water to you know housing standards and the way we were going to inject parks and and green space and in ironically today statues and monuments and things that would you know create a, a sense of culture within the cities these were things that we abandoned and we abandoned them in a very american way you know everybody can have their own plot of america everybody can have their own bit of land everybody can have their own home their own castle the european approach was dramatically different and I think it's important to note because we often ascribe it to, well, you know, their cities were around longer. They were more mature before the automobile. Uh, you know, they, they had things that were in place. And, and that is true. Yet, even in the places where the city was completely leveled, and even in places where all the inhabitants were moved out or exterminated, you know, in, in the process, where, where basically you were starting from scratch they opted to stick with a traditional a, a more traditional model and not you know do what the americans did which is establish a commuter 
type of uh, economic system. We are, for better or for worse, aligned now today to be a country of commuters. And we've oriented everything from the way we develop land all the way to the way we finance and fund infrastructure improvements to double down on this commuter mentality. And the largest victims of that mentality have been people who either were living or ended up living as the sole residents of our inner cities, which has largely been, you know, people of color. Well, and what's interesting about Kansas City and many cities in the Midwest that is that we're, we were largely built during the City Beautiful movement. So that means that we do have a pretty robust parkway and boulevard system in addition to having a freeway network that cuts through our city, especially in previously redlined neighborhoods and choking the downtown. I think that we can find plenty of precedents in other countries for redesigning freeways and cities across the country, but I do have a little bit of skepticism about whether or not we Americans would have the discipline to accurately design traditional parkways and boulevards as a replacement for freeways moving forward. I say this because I've been, I came across an article on um, the Kansas City 71 Highway, um, which is a portion of US 71 that runs north and south through Kansas City that was very controversial at the time that it was proposed, which was fairly recently, because nearby residents and redline neighborhoods were voicing concerns around negative impacts associated with demolishing existing neighborhoods and building a freeway. In order to persuade the vocal opposition, the project was simply rebranded as a parkway project, which included a beautification strategy, adding landscaping, lowering speed limits, installing traffic lights at intersections. This project was completed back in 2001, and it most definitely does not function as a parkway, despite the landscape apologies and the traffic facilities, but it is still designed as a freeway. And I'd argue that it's actually more dangerous because they tried to do both. You know, I actually found in the article that back in this, when this project was being analyzed in 2014, MoDOT was actually quoted saying that it's as safe as we can make it. What is going to make this corridor safer is going to be the behavior of people, which is a statement that is kind of a cop-out to me, if I can be blunt. I've talked about on a previous episode how Kansas City's traditional boulevard and parkway system is actually a pretty good alternative to freeways. And personally, I don't have to utilize our freeways unless I'm going pretty far outside the downtown. I think that there, there's many U.S. cities that have a similar network like this, um, especially ones that were built during the City Beautiful movement. What I would genuinely like to see is a 21st century City Beautiful movement that is explicitly geared towards rejuvenating existing walkable neighborhoods in a way that sincerely up- uplifts communities, particularly where people have been left out of wealth building in our country. I think that that means that we have to have more discipline about how we design streets. And I'm not confident necessarily that we have the departments of transportation that are going to be flexible to that idea. I think when we look at the highway system today, the, the, you know, the question of like, could we tear these things down? 
seems absurd to us. It seems insane. Like, what would we do if we tore down the highways, you know, around Los Angeles? I think it's important to note two things. First of all, we should measure the value of highways in terms of travel time. I know often we think of them in terms of speed, and engineers tend to default to speed as being like the metric we use to say success. But the reality is, is that design speed or the speed you can go in a level of service A where you're not inhibited is a really poor indicator of how long it takes you to get somewhere. Travel time is a much greater indicator. And, you know, when we go to a, a city like Los Angeles, they measure distance in travel time. And if you actually measure it in miles, the difference between miles and travel time is obscene. So, we are spending an enormous amount of money on freeways, on interstates today, and we are not getting anywhere near the travel time that you would expect to get from that investment. So tearing them down, it's not like your, <laughs> it's not like your, you know, travel time is going to be impacted in any way. I actually think what you would do is you would hasten the the redevelopment that needs to happen throughout much of Los Angeles into, as you say, like a more localized neighborhood approach. Instead, what we're doing, and this is the second point I want to make on this, you can go to Los Angeles today and, and you can see places where the California Department of Transportation is gone to local neighborhoods, local communities. The city of Santa Ana is one where I have intimate experience with this. Santa Ana is a generally poor community, a community that is, uh, you know, has a, a very, very high percentage of not only Hispanics, but a very high percentage of undocumented, you know, people living there. So this is a very poor and, and, and I think traditionally disenfranchised kind of city. They have gone to that city and said, hey, uh, we will give you a bunch of money to maintain the local streets that are near the highway, near the interstate, if we are able to build them to highway standards and use them as essentially overflow during high peak congestion periods. The city, and, and I think, you know, understanding the dynamics there are important. City's very poor. They don't have the money to fix these streets. Here's the state department of transportation saying we'll do it. It's very hard to say no to this money. Yet, what are you doing? You're actually taking the, uh, the train wreck, you know, the disaster that you created by running the highway through in the first place. And now you're migrating it to local streets and local neighborhoods and just doing the same thing over again. This is a pernicious dynamic that I think will continue to destroy communities until we recognize that running highways through the middle of places, creating a commuter mentality, having these mega regions where the idea is that people will live in one clustered neighborhood and then travel through other clustered neighborhoods to a cluster of, of businesses, is just not, not only not an efficient way to build it's, it's not a human way to build places. And until we grasp that, I think we're going to struggle to actually reconcile, you know, provocative statements like tear down all the freeways to end racism and uh, actual, you know, reality as we, uh, in a very narrow sense, experience it. Yeah. And maybe tearing down the freeways actually means redesigning the freeways based on what localities want and opening up the land for redevelopment. And I think that there's a whole other discussion that could be had about how 
a land use strategy would happen along a repurposed highway corridor where, you know, you there would be questions about who gets ownership of that land and how does it actually help the community. I think that could be a whole other episode. And I feel like we could talk about this subject for hours, but unfortunately we are out of time today. But before we wrap up today's episode, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we get to share anything interesting that we have been up to lately. So with that, I'll pass it back to you, Chuck. What has been engaging your attention this week? Lots of things, but I'm going to share one because I needed a little break. You know, we don't have baseball, which is my like summer passion. We're get, we're supposedly getting it back, although they just announced today that three of my Minnesota twins uh, actually have tested positive now for coronavirus, and it's very unclear like what a baseball season is going to look like amidst a pandemic where you know players are taken out for you know weeks and weeks in a very shortened season uh, because they've tested positive, and you know what the impacts are going to be. So I just needed like a break. And there's a comedian, Tom Papa, who is a funny guy. He's an he's a like New York, New Jersey kind of guy. I've always enjoyed him. He's he's pretty clean, you know, and uh I just like his humor. He wrote a book, actually, it's his second book. It's called You're Doing Great and Other Reasons to Stay Alive. And it's just a series of essays, and he reads them and walking around uh town, you know, with the dog and uh uh, walking to work and all that. It's been kind of a fun listen to just take your mind off things. So Tom Papa, you're doing great. And he will convince you that uh, you're doing okay. Go ahead and stay alive. <laughs> well, that sounds like a really nice read. You know, I actually feel like I have been not spending enough time listening to other things like music. I actually kind of go through phases where I spend a lot of time listening to books and podcasts. And recently, I've been trying to listen to more music. This week, I've been listening to a lot of the Punch Brothers, which is an instrumental group mostly. They play all kinds of different instruments and they're very good. You know, recently musicians in my neighborhood have been playing a lot out in the streets, which has been really fun to listen to and has inspired me to pick up my guitar more to practice. I've been playing guitar for as long as I can remember. So I'm actually considering whether or not I should try a different instrument. I used to play viola when I was younger, so I've been thinking about maybe learning the fiddle or something like that. I don't know. I've, I kind of feel like I've hit a wall with guitar, which makes it kind of less appealing to play. So, yeah, just trying to listen to more music and play music. I'm sympathetic as a drummer. And by the way, it was raining last weekend, so I, I set my drums up again. It, they haven't been set up since... Uh, during the pandemic, I had to take them down because I needed the office space at home for the studio. Now I'm back in the office, so I can put the drums back. And we did that last weekend, my daughter and I, who plays. But yeah, you're, you're basically speaking like the life of a drummer. You you become a drummer and you spend years like playing and then you recognize like, okay, I have a great instrument. Like I really like this, but like it's the least expressive expressive in some ways of all the instruments in the band. So maybe I should do something else. Um, so yeah, that's I, how I kind of feel about guitar. Like, I feel like I've hit the, like, I feel like I'm boxed in with the guitar and I need to try a different instrument. And, um, there's a musician in my neighborhood that's been playing fiddle out in the street. And I've been just thinking that that looks like more fun than guitar. Maybe it's because she's 
good at it and makes it look easy. I don't know. I just, I, I think I want a different sound. We have a harmonica, but I don't know. I, that That's not exactly what I'm looking for. No, no. And and my, my youngest plays viola and it is a beautiful instrument. Um, I'm trying to get them to do piano viola duets. I bought them some music and, you know, they're teenagers. So they, the, the, the number of hours in a day they get along is probably not long enough to develop that quite yet. If you've got that background, I think fiddle would be a, a really nice jumping off point. Yeah, I'm I'm seriously considering it. So definitely looking for a used fiddle. I'm in the market. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say as a last note here, I, I always am surprised when this topic comes up. I was really surprised at how much feedback I got in the last week about duck, duck, gray duck. Um, <laughs> all kinds of people said, like, I've never heard of this. You guys are crazy. You're like, what's going on? And it's funny because it's never been a deal for me. And and I, to find out that other people like had this weird reaction. So yeah, that was funny. The last week I've probably gotten half a dozen people or more who emailed me or pinged me in some way and said, duck, duck, great duck. What are you talking about? Yeah. You guys up in Minnesota are just very weird with your <laughs> duck, duck, gray duck. <laughs> uh, All right. I think that wraps it up today. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Abby. Take care. Take care.